to my little friend. Hey again everyone and welcome to, gosh, episode 5 of Say Hello to My Little Friend, also known as the Beretta Cast. I'm Glenn Peoples. Now this time we've got something a little bit different. Every time for the first 10 or so it's going to be a little bit different, I guess. Um, up until now we've been kind of philosophical about things, looked at political philosophy, looked at moral philosophy and philosophy of religion. Today we're going to get a bit more theological and biblical and I'm going to talk about in particular, the Christian doctrine of hell, the doctrine of eternal punishment, and my take on that. Um, for the record, I hold to a point of view that is called annihilationism, which is a particular understanding of hell that differs from the mainstream um, traditional point of view. Although it's not that small the minority these days, I would say there are, there are quite a few out there promoting the view that I hold. Uh, Michael Green is one, John Stott... Clark Pinnock is also one. Uh, um, yeah, it's not about name dropping. But if you want, if you really want to know, I'll, I'll, I'll put. A, in fact, I may put a list on the on the show notes in the blog for this episode. But what you're going to hear today is the first of two parts on the doctrine of hell. Now, this first session is going to consist of me presenting my point of view, annihilationism. Uh, explaining it and offering a biblical defense of it, as well as considering some initial uh, responses to my point of view that have been offered by traditionalist apologists, those who defend the view uh, of hell as eternal torment. Also, because uh, this presentation makes this episode a little bit longer than, than the others, uh, there won't be uh, a This Week in History segment or a uh, blog roundup. But if it's any compensation to you at all, uh, there are going to be two episodes this week, so you're not going to miss out on anything. So just enjoy, and now I'm with the show. I am, in case you didn't realize already, an annihilationist. That means I think the Bible teaches annihilationism. Annihilationism is the view that eternal life is the gift of God, and that those who do not receive this gift will not live forever. Okay, now initially to, to most Christians that sounds pretty uncontroversial, unless they think about it for a few seconds. Stated more negatively, annihilationists deny the more popular Christian claim that the Bible teaches the traditional doctrine of the eternal torment of the damned in hell. And we aff affirm instead that the Bible teaches that the lost will one day die forever. It is important, I think, to realize that Annihilationism is not simply a denial that the Bible teaches eternal punishment. If that were the case, you could just look up a verse that uses the phrase eternal punishment and that would settle the debate. It's not that simple. Annihilationism, like uh, one of the varieties of traditional views, is a particular view of what that eternal punishment will consist of. 
Now, not only am I an annihilationist, but because of my view of truth and what it is, I think that all evangelical Christians should be annihilationists, because I think the biblical case for annihilationism is very strong. And I think the arguments against annihilationism are very weak in comparison. That's not to say that there are no ambiguous texts of scripture on the subject, or that there are no criticisms at all that need to be overcome. I just said that the arguments for the other side are weak in comparison. Uh, I think every claim about what the Bible teaches, right or wrong, is going to have some explaining to do at some point, and annihilationism is no exception. So today, I'm going to do two things. I'm going to outline a biblical case for annihilationism as best I can in one session, and after each main point in favor of annihilationism, I will address some of the main arguments against it. Uh, Robert Peterson of Covenant Theological Seminary and Christopher Morgan, I believe, of California Baptist University are perhaps today's most vocal critics of annihilation and defenders of their traditional point of view. In fact, uh, their entire published careers, as far as I can tell, have been committed to that task. So I'll be using them as examples fairly often. Uh, after doing this, in fact this will probably happen in the next session, uh, the next episode of Say Hello to My Little Friend, I will turn to, um, I guess, the case against annihilationism and in favor of the more traditional view, or at least one of them, and I'll spend some time explaining why I think that argument fails. But that's probably going to take up more time than I can fit into one episode, so that'll be next time. Um, and just for ease of reference, uh, I will be using the term traditionalist in this presentation and the next one to refer to somebody who holds what has become the traditional view, or the, the sort of cluster of views that has become uh, that have become regarded as the traditional ones, namely of hell as a place of eternal torment of some sort. So, I'll get started. While I think that there are many biblical arguments for annihilationism, uh, we don't have, well, we do have a long time. I guess I could spend weeks on this, but I'm not going to. Because I, I want to be concise, I'm going to use the three arguments that stand out to me as the most important, as perhaps the clearest, uh, probably the most persuasive, although that may vary from one person to the next. Those arguments are the biblical question of immortality, the biblical vision of eternity, and the biblical language of destruction. So let's get started with those now. Number one is the biblical question of immortality. It's the first, although not necessarily the most important argument, and it starts at the beginning, quite literally, of the Bible. Well, close to the beginning, chapter 2 of Genesis. Uh, in Genesis, God creates humanity in his image, and in Genesis 2.7 we read that God formed man from the dust and breathed into him the breath of life. And then this dust-formed creature became a living soul, as the authorized version says, or became a living creature or a living being, depending on the version that you have in front of you. In this initial state, we could ask the question of whether or not man was mortal or immortal. Uh, I don't think scripture is explicit. I don't think it makes a strong claim either way. For my own part, I do not think that we have the answer, but I'm sympathetic uh, to the claim that man before the fall was, and whoever made this claim coined a word, immortable. So that means capable of becoming immortal or capable of forfeiting that destiny. So I guess that means he was mortal. 
Uh, I think that's certainly faithful to the way that the story of humanity in Genesis unfolds. It doesn't matter if you don't think that. Uh, if you think that he was immortal, then then I guess you'll be committed to the claim that he gave it up. He gave immortality up. Either way, the result is the same. God tells Adam in Genesis not to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, or he would die. Uh, literally, dying you shall die. Is a I won't go into it, but it's a Hebrew construction, which means you're going to fully die. Uh, I think Calvin was right, uh, not on the question of eternal torment, obviously, but I think he was right to see that this means not so much that man would drop dead on the day that he ate it, but that Adam's death commenced on that day and culminated on the day that he did return to the dust, just as God promised. Commenting on this verse, Calvin said, The miseries and evils, both of soul and body, with which man is beset so long as he is on earth, are a kind of entrance into death, till death itself entirely absorbs him. As we know, the first humans did rebel against God, and God judged them. The serpent, in the story in Genesis, had told Eve that in spite of God's warning, in fact, they would not die. They would gain knowledge and lose essentially nothing. And that's in Genesis 3, verses 4 through 5. As the story continues to unfold, surprise, surprise, we see that that was a lie. In Genesis 3.22, we see that God would not allow sinful man to remain alive indefinitely. In fact, the Hebrew text reveals an interesting feature that has been called, I think it was by Sidney Hatch, the writer, I think, the reticence of God. So I'll read from Genesis 3, uh, verses 22 through 24. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim, and a flaming sword flashed back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Now I think, well, I don't just think, I know, the NIV uh, tidies up the grammar for us to make the language more digestible, but that has the effect, unfortunately, of losing some of the impact of this quotation the way it's written. The Hebrew does not say that man must not be allowed to take of the fruit of the tree of life and live forever. Instead, more literally, it reads as follows. I won't read the Hebrew text, I'll read it in English for obvious reasons. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now, lest he reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever... So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden. Notice the break in that sentence there. It's not complete. It's, it's grammatically wrong. God in this narrative does not finish the sentence. And that's because the consequences are literally unspeakable. A man is not permitted to have access to immortality in his fallen state, and God will not even speak of such a thing. And so human death entered the world. But if this is so, and the lost do not cannot live forever, then the doctrine of eternal torment is false. Because if it were true, then the lost would live forever. That sounds pretty simple. Contrast this with the uh, con sorry, contrast this biblical claim with the teaching of the Reformed and Presbyterian churches in one of its three forms of unity. Uh, that's the term given to three statements of faith that summarize Reformed and Presbyterian doctrine. 
In this case, it's the confession of faith called the Belgic Confession. When speaking of the Last Judgment, in Article 37 of the Belgic Confession, it says, The evil ones will be convicted by the witness of their own consciences, and shall be made immortal, but only to be tormented in the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Now that's contrary to what the Bible teaches about immortality. The hope of immortality, as we heard, was lost in Adam, and the New Testament teaches it's regained in Christ, but only in Christ. This is the message of Scripture. Uh, the book of Proverbs tells us in, in chapter 12 and verse 28, In the way of the righteous there is life. Along that path is immortality. Well, why say that if there's immortality along both paths, righteous and wicked? Endless life is not a universal expectation. This is only affirmed more and more in the New Testament. In, in 2 Timothy chapter 1, Paul tells Timothy about the saving grace of God. He says, This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So it's through the gospel that life and immortality can be restored to human beings. The tragic corollary of this is that if you ultimately reject the gospel, you will not have immortality. And the Belgic Confession is wrong, because it says that the wicked will have immortality. This truth is expressed, uh, for example, again in, in 1 Corinthians 15, the classic chapter on the resurrection of the dead, where the death brought about by the first man, Adam, is replaced with immortality brought about by the second Adam, Christ. Paul says uh, in this chapter, in verse 49, that just as we have borne the likeness of the earthly man, so we shall bear the likeness of the man from heaven. He goes further still, speaking of the resurrection of the saints, who will bear Christ's glorious resurrected image, saying, I'll quote now from Paul, For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed clothed with the perishable and the mortal with immortality then the saying that is written will come true death has been swallowed up in victory where O death is your victory where O death is your sting and that's 1 Corinthians 15 verses 53 through to 55 and so the first biblical argument is simple it's this contrary to what some Christians think as shown in the example of the Belgic Confession which is quite honest and explicit about what it means to say the unsaved will not have immortality that is endless life immortality is a gift of God that he gives exclusively to his people this means among other things that a time will come when God's people are partaking of immortality but there are no unsaved people alive anywhere additional to this argument and the two should not be confused they are different arguments Annihilationists have pointed out that traditionalists are often, not necessarily, but very often, uh, less so today than through history, I dare say, often committed to the doctrine of the immortality of the soul. While this isn't the only reason evangelical traditionalists believe that the Bible teaches eternal torment, the effect that this belief will have on your approach to the issue is just obvious. If souls just are immortal, if they do not die ever, then they have to live somewhere. And if they don't go to heaven, then they will spend an eternity living in hell. But since the immortality of the soul is a claim that the lost either do or will have immortality, 
it must be rejected for the same reason that, well, I've, I've just outlined. That immortality, according to Scripture, is a gift for the people of God and them alone. Now, traditionalist responses now to this argument. The traditionalist response to arguments about human immortality must ultimately affirm that the Bible teaches that the lost will be made immortal, just as the Belgic Confession explicitly does. However, traditionalist responses tend to focus only on the second of these two arguments outlined above, about the immortality of the soul, while the first is generally overlooked, even though that's, I think, the more serious argument. The response has been a defense against the claim that traditionalists skew biblical theology to fit their belief in the immortal soul. Now, that's a response that needs to be made, sure, I grant that, but the more substantial argument is the first one, namely, what the Bible positively teaches about immortality. And, unfortunately, traditionalists have little to say about the direct scriptural statements about immortality. Instead, the argument is that, well, since other biblical texts, in their opinion at least, teach eternal torment, the lost must somehow receive immortality, and that is that. A couple of examples make this clear. I'm not just uh, creating this ridiculous comeback to give myself an easy victory. This is genuinely the way the argument goes. Um, while he does not address the first of the arguments discussed here, Christopher Morgan, when addressing the second argument on the supposed inherent immortality of the soul, replies, It seems clear from Revelation 20.10 that Satan, the beast, and the false prophet are punished forever. Do they somehow have inherent immortality? Of course not. God will keep them in existence endlessly in order to punish them. Similarly, the wicked will be punished consciously forever in hell, not because they exist as immortal souls, but because God will sustain them. So Morgan only interacts with an extreme argument here, namely the accusation that traditionalists believe that the soul is immortal in such a strong sense that God himself could not destroy it. That's kind of a straw man. Annihilationists don't make that attack in the first place, as far as I know. They don't say, well, you traditionalists, you don't even think that God could destroy the soul. Now, that's not true. We don't say that, or at least if any annihilationist does, he doesn't need to and shouldn't. Uh, in fact, even the immortality that the saved will one day receive is not immortality in that strong sense. The real issue, which is obscured by uh, Morgan's reply here, unfortunately, is not whether or not the soul is inherently or independently immortal, but whether it is immortal at all. Whether or not immortality will come to all or only to some. Whether God gives them endless life or whether he does not. Not because, of, you know, not because it's inherent to them, but because he gives it to them. But as a response to the more substantial issue, Morgan's words clearly put the cart before the horse. Here's why. The annihilationist claim is that the Bible teaches that immortality will only come to the saved, and so the traditional interpretation of texts like Revelation 20 verse 10 must be wrong. It's not much of a reply to say that, well, since the traditionalist interpretation of Revelation 20.10 is correct, annihilationists must be wrong about the biblical passages that speak directly to the question of human immortality. By dealing only with the charge that traditionalists are influenced by their doctrine of the immortality of the soul, and not dealing with this more important biblical argument concerning uh, its teaching on immortality, Morgan ends up failing to address this more substantial issue. Unfortunately, and I do mean unfortunately, I wish, I don't want an easy victory, I wish that 
traditionalist would take the bull by the horns and really interact with the issue so that we could see the best defense that they have. But unfortunately, failing to address the whole issue is a common theme among traditionalists who reply to annihilationist arguments, as far as I can tell. Robert Peterson uh, engages in exactly the same reply to this argument, exactly the same. He filters out the first argument about what the Bible says about immortality, addresses only the second argument, and then does so backwards, just like Morgan did, by claiming that his interpretation of proof text on eternal torment is the right one, and therefore the argument from immortality should be rejected. Uh, when in dialogue with Edward Fudge, they wrote a book together called Two Views of Hell, or Two Views on Hell. He, his reply does not even mention any of the texts that speak of human immortality directly. He frankly admits that the Bible only ever explicitly attributes immortality to God and to the saved. He claims that since the Bible teaches eternal torment in Matthew 25:46 and Revelation 20:10. He says Fudge errs when he rejects the immortality of the lost. Not on the basis of what the Bible says about the immortality of the lost, but on the basis of an inference about eternal torment drawn from some other texts. So he never actually deals with the evidence about immortality when it's explicit in the Bible. This is nothing more than the refusal to allow biblical arguments to count against an interpretation of Scripture on the grounds that one is already convinced of the truth of traditionalism. There is no getting away from the fact that traditionalism teaches that the lost will be made immortal, as Peterson grants, and as the Belgic Confession again makes explicit, but there is likewise no getting around the fact that Scripture teaches that immortality is a gift for the saved only. Attempting to reverse this assessment by claiming that the Bible teaches eternal torment just shows us the unfortunate tendency, and it is a pattern, unfortunately, that some have, have to allow their doctrine to filter out other aspects of biblical teaching that they are not comfortable with. Not only do human beings not have souls that are independently and necessarily immortal and immune from divine destruction, something that both sides agree on as far as I can tell, but also, the Bible makes it clear that immortality of any kind is a gift that God will give the saved. So I'll move on to the second argument, which is the biblical vision of eternity. Now this second argument is that the Bible paints for us a broad picture of what eternity will be like. It's a big picture in the sense that not every detail is spelt out. But as a grand sort of cosmic layout, one fact of eternity is glaringly clear. There is no place for evil in it. Now, I want to be very clear. I'm not going to say, well, this idea of hell is so grotesque that it is evil, so it won't happen, because there's no evil in eternity, and hell is evil, because it's so horrible. I'm not going to say that. The argument is much more careful. Scripture tells us that a time will come when evil will be no more. It does so explicitly on a number of occasions. In the redeemed creation, God will have an unblemished slate. As an illustration, and it is only an illustration, and therefore not perfect, recall the biblical account of the flood uh, in Genesis. Recall what God said. A quote from Genesis 6, verses 7 and 8. So the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I have created from the face of the earth, men and animals, 
and creatures that move along the ground, and birds of the air, for I am grieved that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Now take note of what God says here. He's going to destroy humanity. Why? Because he is sorry that he made them. Now no amount of suffering could alleviate that problem of saying, I'm sorry that I have made them. Because they would still be there. And you'd still be saying, here they are, I'm sorry that I have made them. What God was doing in this story was starting over. A new world with his chosen people as the inhabitants. It would be a world free of all the things that God regretted. Now I know, the flood is not the final judgment. It is, however, a story that is illustrative of the way in which God approaches punishment to achieve something. And as we know, this will become relevant later in this uh, presentation, the flood is used of a picture that foreshadows God's final punishment of the lost in Second Peter chapter 3. The New Testament anticipates, a, and the Old Testament, but more clearly the New Testament, anticipates a creation in which there is no cause for divine regret. Everything that lives will be under Christ and in his kingdom. When the Apostle Paul wrote about God's sovereign saving plan, ordained from all eternity, he said in, first, in sorry, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, it says, And he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. Now in context, uh, this discussion is saying, Paul is saying here that in Christ, God had purposed to save us from all eternity, so that the whole work of salvation gives glory to God alone, and not to us because of our wisdom or good works. But notice that the work of sovereignly bringing us under Christ, our head, is just part of God's larger plan of bringing not only us, but literally everything in creation also under one head, namely Christ. This allows us two possibilities then. Either those who reject the gospel in this life will also, like us, be brought under one head, Christ, and be saved eventually as well. Or else a time will come when there simply will be no people who persist in rejecting the gospel, not because they've been converted, but because they're not alive anymore. So in effect we have to choose between annihilationism or universalism. I think that the arguments for God's eternal punishment of the lost are much too strong to accept universalism, which leaves us with annihilationism as the way to account for the biblical vision of eternity. There's another good example of the biblical vision of eternity that I'm talking about, stated differently in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, uh, verses 24 through 28. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed, he is Christ here by the way in the larger context, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For he has put everything under his feet. And down to verse 28. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him, so that God may be all in all. So here, Paul is discussing what will happen after the resurrection of the dead has occurred. What is made clear is that God's enemies are no more. Even death itself, so even abstract entities, are no more. Uh, death itself is clearly not being 
tortured in some far-flung corner of creation, it will be gone. And using what is actually accounting terminology here, Paul says that God sums up all the totals and Christ is all in all. There's literally nothing that is not under Christ. The picture is one of perfect unity and peace everywhere. But given such a perfect picture, what room is left for evil? Where is where, sin? Where are sinners? Where are people who still rebel against God? Where are people who sin? Well, nowhere. That's the answer. Perversely, and I really mean perversely in a sick and twisted way in my humble opinion. Defenders of the doctrine of eternal torment have taught the opposite of scripture here. And even worse, that not only will creation be forever divided into a stark dualism of glory and anguish, heaven and hell, but that this will actually be something that we take great pleasure in. Can you imagine? Two examples will suffice to make this point, but more could be shown. I will use one Catholic, one Protestant, I won't be biased. First, Thomas Aquinas in his Summa Theologica, a third part supplement, question XCIV, of the relations of the saints towards the damned. First article, quoting from the man referred to as the medieval doctor now. In order that the happiness of the saints be more delightful to them, and that they may render more copious thanks to God for it, they are allowed to see perfectly the sufferings of the damned, so that they may be urged the more to praise God. The saints in heaven know distinctly all that happens to the damned. And secondly, Isaac Watts, the theologian and hymn writer of the Great Awakening, put together this crisp little verse. What bliss will fill the ransomed souls when they in glory dwell to see the sinner as he rolls in quenchless flames of hell. Ah, the bliss that you would get from that, I'm sure, Mr. Watts. It requires very little effort to notice the very sharp contrast between this outlook and the biblical vision of eternity. What an incredibly different vision. How alien this vision of eternity is to Scripture's vision of eternity. In Scripture, the glorious fact is that all evil is gone. All creation worships Christ. He is all in all. In such creation, endless torment of the damned is impossible because there's nothing evil left to torment at all. And I would hardly think that the idea that there being so, let alone human people to be tormented, would be a source of bliss to us in a world like that. Now, let's look at some traditionalist responses to this argument. Ironically, uh, when replying to universalists, who also appeal to these texts, some traditionalists, without thinking about it, unwittingly fall into agreeing with the nihilationist on this point. Not that I mind, mind you. Um, I don't mind if they want to score an own goal, they're welcome to do so. Uh, for example, Professor of New Testament at Mennonite Brethren Biblical Seminary, Dave Ewart, while defending the doctrine of eternal torment against universalists, uh, says, Universalists appeal to Ephesians 1.10, where the gathering together of all things in heaven and on earth in Christ is mentioned. 
While the verse does teach that in Christ all discordant elements of the universe are done away, it does not say that all will be saved eventually. I agree with that. The irony is that this reply comes in a book that is supposed to be defending the doctrine of eternal torment. Annihilationists couldn't agree more, but avoiding universalism in this way also deals a death blow to the doctrine of eternal torment. Because it admits, using his, uh, David Ewart's words here, that all discordant elements of the universe are done away with, and all things will be subject to Christ. Some traditionalists, however, uh, unlike Mr. Ewart, apparently do see the way that texts like this can be seen to support annihilationism, and so they address the argument. Looking at the array of texts that teach the ultimate end of evil, and seeing how annihilationists use them, Christopher Morgan, to his credit, admits, when reviewing this annihilationist argument as it was used by John Stott, that, quote, at first glance, this argument seems persuasive. After all, he observes, the ultimate eradication of the wicked seems to be a better victory than endless punishment. Not only does it seem better, but I've argued uh, that the future absence of evil is actually indicated by some texts of scripture, so I don't think he really concedes enough here. Frustratingly, however, Morgan does not offer an exegetical treatment of any of those texts that I mentioned in support of this annihilationist argument. Instead, exactly like last time, he doesn't talk about those texts, he just returns to the same well as when res responding to the argument from immortality. And he says, But a better approach is to ask, What do the script scriptures teach about the final victory of God? The Bible seems to teach that God's ultimate victory is compatible with the endless punishment of the wicked. The final chapters of Revelation contrast the final state of the redeemed with that of the wicked. Dr. Morgan then cites Revelation 20.10 again, concluding that because of what he thinks that text means, in fact evil will always exist in hell. Because of that interpretation of Revelation 20.10, he nuances the claims of texts like Ephesians 1.10 and says that since evil will only exist in hell, it is being repressed at least, and therefore does not contribute to a dualistic view of eternity. Now this, as I said earlier, reveals a very troubling pattern of the way that some evangelicals address challenges to their theology, just the way they think about the relationship between scripture and doctrine. Two arguments now have been brought against their interpretation of a range of biblical texts, including, most prominently, Revelation 20.10, namely the biblical argument from immortality and the biblical vision of eternity. Now these arguments are supposed to get people to reconsider their reading of, say, Revelation 20.10. But in each case, the arguments have been dismissed because of the very interpretation that is being challenged by simply quoting Revelation 20.10 as evidence. That interpretation, it would seem, is being placed beyond dispute and is itself being used as the standard by which challenges to it are evaluated. A more clear-cut example of circular reasoning than the way this text is used in both these cases would be hard to imagine. I'm going to take a short break and then I'll come back with the third 
argument for annihilationism. I'll be right back. Top of the morning. This is Trent and Blair from the Manners Etacast. Uh, hey. <laughs> it's not very polite to eat while we're... Whatever. Let's just do the promo. All right. Well, the Manners Cast is a look at everyday manners for everyday folks like us. Like not interrupting while someone's eating, right? It's a great way to pass the time at work. It is good for that. Well, and you, you might hear something that'll change the way you look at the world. And maybe you could recommend it to your Neanderthal friends who interrupt you while you're eating. Apparently, it's also a good place to get stuff off your chest. Right. So look for us at MannersCast.com. Or search Manners in the iTunes Music Store. Do the world a favor and start listening today. www.MannersCast.com I have to wonder with some of these ads what the people on those podcasts would think if they knew that the ad of theirs was playing alongside or in the midst of a theological discussion like this. But in any case, where were we? Moving on to the third argument that I'm going to use today in favor of annihilationism, and that is the biblical language of destruction. It's the simplest argument for annihilationism, and it is as follows. The Bible directly teaches that the lost will be destroyed. And it really is as simple as that sounds. The Bible uses a range of language to describe the fate of the lost, but overwhelmingly uh, what we see is the clear language of destruction. This is probably the easiest of the three arguments to make because, and it's going to sound like I'm exaggerating, I'm not. The Bible overflows with very straightforward examples, so I've chosen just a selection to use. In Matthew 10.28, Jesus tells his disciples that rather than fearing men who can kill the body, they should, quote, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell, end quote. We know what Jesus meant with, uh, with his reference to men who can kill the body. Here, the ultimate power to kill the whole person in Gehenna, unhelpfully translated hell, is affirmed by Jesus. Of course, we could try to avoid the annihilationist outcome by saying that This text merely asserts God's ability to destroy people, not his intention to do so. But if 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 we're going to go that way, then the same purpose would be served by some absurd warning like, be afraid of the one who can turn you into a chicken, or a melon, or an acorn, or something. The warning would be misguided, because God is not going to turn anyone into a melon, or a chicken, or an acorn. But he is going to destroy the lost in hell, for, for want of a better word. The fact is stressed so often and so emphatically in the Bible that the disinterested reader will see it without difficulty. Some more examples. In Matthew seven thirteen and 14, the Lord warns that we should seek the narrow path that leads to life and, the, and that the way to destruction, by contrast, is wide and followed by many. The two possible outcomes there are uncomplicated, presented in straightforward terms, life and destruction. In Matthew 13, verses 40 to 42, after telling the parable of of the weeds, uh, Jesus interprets it to his disciples as follows. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the close of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and lawlessness, sorry, all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, throw them into the fiery furnace and throw them into the fiery furnace. 
In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. Now notice, I'm not simply basing my claim on the parable Jesus told earlier in this chapter. I'm basing it on his own interpretation of its meaning. There's no secret meaning of fiery furnace here, no code language about weeds that is not explained. Just as weeds are destroyed in a furnace, so evildoers will be rooted out and destroyed at the end of the age. The Bible is literally packed with affirmations of this fact, but so often we simply don't notice them. We are familiar with nice, simple evangelistic texts like Romans 3.23, and I don't say that to belittle it. It really is a good evangelistic text. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. But less often do we pause to think about the simple words that verses like this uses. Death, life. All I am arguing in this uh, presentation here is that we should let texts like this speak and not subconsciously edit or filter them so that by the time we have processed them through our theological reading filter, they say something else. To avoid the monotony of citing verse after verse, all of which speak with one clear voice in the same direction on this subject, I'll just give two more, then I'll summarize. Second Thessalonians 1 verse 9 speaks of a future time, quote, When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God, and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. And finally, Second Peter 2 verse 6 tells us of God that, quote, By turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, end quote. I can't conceive of a way to state annihilationism more clearly than that if I wanted to. The absolute annihilation that came upon Sodom and Gomorrah serves as an example of what is coming to the ungodly, namely extinction. As is said in law, res ipsa loquitur. The thing speaks for itself. This evidence is not out of the ordinary as a cursory examination of Scripture very readily confirms. I've just offered a sample of the consensus in Scripture, given the normal way that it speaks of the fate of the lost. Eternal torment just is not there. I'm tempted to say that it's not a matter of being a good theologian, it's just a matter of being able to read. Annihilationism is there. After surveying this overwhelming tendency of New Testament language that I have just presented, Clark Pinnock what, uh, makes what I think is safe to call a, f a very, very fair observation. He says, Our Lord spoke plainly of God's judgment as the annihilation of the wicked when he warned about God's ability to destroy body and soul in hell. He, quotes, he cites Matthew 10.28 there. The Apostle Paul creates the same impression when he wrote of the everlasting destruction that would come upon unrepentant sinners. He cites 2 Thessalonians 1.9. He warned that the wicked would reap corruption, Galatians 6.8, and stated that God would destroy the wicked, 1 Corinthians 3.17, Philippians 1.28. Concerning the wicked, the Apostle stated plainly and concisely, their destiny is destruction, Philippians 3.19. It is no different in any other New Testament book. Paul spoke of the destruction of ungodly men, 2 Peter 
and of false teachers who denied the Lord, thus bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And 2 Peter 2, 1 and 3. And I say, well said. You know, that's a good way of summing up the general consensus of Scripture. So let's look at how traditionalists respond to this argument. There is one basic way of responding to this argument. And, and that traditionalist response here is to claim that destroy, the word destroy in the Bible and similar words, should not be taken as simply or literally as the annihilationist interpretations of these texts take them. Take just one example, uh, 2 Peter 3, verses 6 and 7, where Peter writes that the world of wicked people living at the time of the flood perished. That's the word we have in most of our English versions. And the world is now reserved for fire until the day of judgment and the destruction of ungodly men. Now, traditionalists know that the Greek word referring to destruction and perishing, the same Greek word is drawn on in both instances there. Uh, Don Carson uses this kind of rebuttal, namely to say that the term does not literally mean destroy here. He has sought to remedy the situation for traditionalists by fending off the apparently strong language of destruction. He concedes <coughs> excuse me, that there is an at least reasonable case to be made for annihilationism by appealing to the biblical texts that speak of the destruction of the lost. He admits, while describing the annihilationist view, listing 2 Peter 3.7 as an example, and I quote from Carson now, fair exegesis of the words involves involved suggests total destruction, i.e. cessation of existence, end quote. But he rejects these arguments, calling them too hasty. The apoleia, that's a Greek term, the apoleia word group, he explains, has a range of meanings depending on context, he says. So, while it might literally refer to destruction, it need not always have this meaning in some contexts. He points to examples where this is the case the lost son and the lost coin of Luke 15, the ruined wineskins of Matthew 9.17 and similar examples. Since those are not simply destroyed, perhaps we can legitimately read the Apollaea terms, for example in Second Peter here, as referring to ruin or loss and not literal destruction. Now, for a man who is one of the foremost New Testament uh, well, popular New Testament evangelical scholars, and who has done so much work on it, on exegetical fallacies and how to avoid them, he has undermined himself here. Carson has committed what he elsewhere categorizes as an exegetical fallacy. He has a book called Exegetical Fallacies where he documents this fallacy. Uh, it's a fallacy that he calls the unwarranted adoption of an expanded, expanded semantic field. This fallacy, quote, lies in the assumption that the meaning of a word in a specific context is much broader than the context itself allows and may bring with it the entire words sorry the words entire semantic range this step is sometimes called the illegitimate totality transfer End quote. that's because you're illegitimately trying to transfer every single possible meaning for that word into the one text now he commits the fallacy himself as follows he lists second peter 3:7 as an example of a destruction text used by annihilationists. He then said that the Apollaea word group has a much wider semantic range than this meaning, 
and it can mean loss, ruin, waste, etc., depending on the context in which it appears. Now, the obvious innuendo is that in this text, which is cited by annihilationists, the words of the Apollaea group can mean ruin or loss or waste or something else over and against destruction. But that's not true. If, as Carson pointed out, the context is to be the determining factor uh, in which meaning we find in the word. Remember what I said before? That Peter has just used the verb from the Apollaea word group to refer to what the flood did to those living long ago. They perished. Now, in the same breath, the same sentence, he uses the noun to refer to what God will do in the future to the godless. Now, if context is determinative of meaning, then what does it mean here? To avoid the meaning of destruction, which is clearly the meaning present in the context as seen from the flood example, Carson would have us take our rhetorical crowbars and prize open this word to get access to its fullest, widest possible semantic range so that we can select something else, like ruin or loss instead, as though all the possible meanings of the word are here available to us. They are not. That's precisely the fallacy that he identified. The presence of the scriptural precedent for destruction in the previous sentence, actually it's the same sentence, I think, is the factor that tips the scales against that possibility. So I have to reject Carson's comeback. It is a serious attempt, but it's not successful. Remember, and this doesn't just apply to the annihilationism debate. This is, this applies to any debate about the meaning of biblical passages. So this is good advice in general. Our concern must not be with the range of possible meanings that a word is able to express. Our concern should be with what the most likely meaning of a word is, given its context. Notice, for example, that many of my examples of the language of destruction come from the Synoptic Gospels. That means this is a piece of relevant background information to take into account here. When the verb apolemy is used in the Synoptic Gospels to refer to the actions of one person against another, e.g. Matthew 2.13, Matthew 9.22, apart from the text on eternal punishment, I'm not using those examples here, it always refers to someone literally killing another person. So that's the kind of thing you need to look out for. Contextual clues, how does the author use this word in this setting, what is the most likely meaning, and so forth. What Carson and other traditionalists are doing in 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 Second Peter and throughout the Gospels as well, is asking us to engage in special pleading and to make the word mean something different only when it comes to the text on eternal punishment. And so, on the whole, taking these three arguments into account, I think it's fair to say that the case I am presenting has a veritable landslide of biblical weight behind it, and it will take something absolutely impressive, not merely a repetition of the traditional arguments, but something really impressive to set this case aside. Everything Scripture directly states about the final state of the lost trumpets their eventual destruction, and the doctrine of eternal torment, in my humble opinion, is a full frontal attack on this unambiguous message of the Bible. It is therefore, and I'm using deliberately provocative language, but only if I think it's true, it is therefore unevangelical to affirm the doctrine of eternal torment, and it is eminently proper for evangelical believers to affirm the doctrine of annihilationism in its place.
I want to stress in summing up here four things about the case that I've made for annihilationism. Features that, from an evangelical perspective at least, make it very strong. Firstly, they're biblical arguments. I can't count, I can't remember the number of times that I've read or heard evangelicals carelessly dismiss annihilationism with a wave of the hand as calling it an emotional reaction or a philosophical construct. You know, people trying to justify their repugnance of the doctrine of eternal torment. It's important, therefore, to see that the arguments I have presented depend solely on considerations of what particular biblical texts affirm. If the reader is not convinced by them, that conviction must not depend on assumptions about the nature of justice or theological constructions about, constructs about what the holiness of God demands and so forth. Objections to an exegetical case need to be exegetical in nature. Secondly, these are thematic arguments rather than proof text arguments. Now, of course, individual texts have contributed to the argument, but the arguments are not solely derived from one verse per argument or anything like that, as some evangelical arguments unfortunately might be. Instead, each argument is about a widespread and frequent phenomenon or theme in Scripture, themes that are developed throughout the Bible and supported by a whole array of different kinds of texts. Thirdly, none of these three arguments involve special pleading. Um, at no point have I tried to appeal to a novel or unusual understanding of particular phrases or words. Now, I admit, there is a time to admit that the genre of a particular text might require an unusual reading. Um, I'm not saying that language is never used in an unusual way, but I think it's a particular strength of my position that it doesn't require that I make any such appeals. Um, yeah, so I've, I've only used what I think are absolutely normal rules of hermeneutics under fairly routine circumstances in the Bible to make these three arguments, which I think is, is a point of particular appeal. Fourthly and lastly, the arguments are independent rather than cumulative. That is to say, each of them in isolation counts as a separate reason to believe that annihilationism is biblical. Now, when treated as a cumulative case, the three arguments are much more impressive than one. But it would be a big mistake to think that this is a case of, uh, say, a chain of three links. And if you break one chain, well, then you've broken the argument. Now, I don't think any one of these arguments does fail, but the thing to note is that the success of the other two would not be compromised, even if the reader thought that one of them had shortcomings. So even if you thought, well, I don't really think he's made his case about the biblical teaching on immortality, you'd still have to contend independently with the biblical language of destruction and the biblical vision of eternity. So I think that what I've presented you with is a sound, thoroughly evangelical argument why you should believe that annihilationism is biblical and why the initial responses of traditionalists to those arguments are not impressive. Uh, what I'll do next time is I will look at the arguments against annihilationism, which will largely consist of arguments for eternal torment and I will go through them and show what I think the major shortcomings with those arguments are but it's so long for now <laughs>